Hello friends, and welcome to So Poetry Reviews. I am very excited to be back in the saddle doing another one of these episodes. I know that it's only the second one that I've done so far, but so far it's been a, um, these have been a nice change of pace from uh, the main cast of So Poetry. Um, I don't know if this is premature or not, but um, I've begun sort of uh, thinking about my process and what I do to prep for the So Poetry reviews, um, which has been, at least so far, a lot more prep than I do uh, for the main So Poetry podcast. Um, but that got me thinking, just sort of in reflection of, of, of compiling my notes for, for this particular episode, uh, it got me thinking about, I don't know, like the, the logistics of making plans and the sort of theoretical space that they occupy and then when you start to uh, try to actualize them in a, a, t a tangible way you try to um, incarnate them into the world uh, all of the the adjustments that that take place or that that need to happen or just the unforeseen things that come up that drastically shift uh, what you intend to do or halt said plans um, because <laughs> Uh, initially, I was not going to do the book that I'm do that I'm doing for this episode. Um, I was planning on going through the big old stack of poetry books that I have that uh, I've been meaning to read and to get through. Um, but I, for whatever reason, um, I picked up a short story collection by Haruki Murakami and started reading it, and realized that I had just kind of a lot to say. So. I decided to review um, After the Quake by Haruki Murakami, which I, in some way I, I think works out for me because part of, I don't know, I guess sort of on the, on the, the back end side of things for So Poetry Reviews, um, like I said, it's, it was, uh, I think I said this in the first episode, that the, the original inception for this sidecast was a reason for me uh, like a hard and fast reason for me to read through all of the books that I've been meaning to read, which was, and this part was unsaid, but it may, you may have been able to intuit it, it, that the reason I would like to read through all the books that I have that I have not gotten to is to determine whether or not I want to hold on to them or not, because, um, I don't know, I'm, Maybe not to the level of like Marie Kondo and the like the magical art of tidying up and the I don't know if you would call it minimalist lifestyle that's being promoted in that. But I I tend to enjoy living relatively minimalist. Um, you know, like I don't have a whole I don't I don't feel like I have a whole lot of excessiveness when it comes to things, with the exception of maybe I don't know. It used to be musical instruments, but I've cut back significantly from those. Um, so the only other thing that I have really in excess is books. And um, I used to have books and hold on to them for the kind of the sake of having books and holding on to them. But as I've getting as I've gotten older and as I've moved apartments a number of times. Um, it's a real pain in the ass to pack up and move a shit ton of books. Um, so I would, I don't know. I, I'm also thinking, I'm trying to think of ways or I'm trying to, I guess, like live a, 
a more intentional life and I would like to have books that like I either enjoy reading or there I will reread or there's there's some I don't know like there's something that keeps me coming back to them or some some value that I that I see in them that would necessitate holding on to something versus you know like rent or uh, renting it geez checking it out from a library um because there have been a number of books that I've I've bought off of Amazon or from bookstores or you know what have you and I've because they've piqued my interest and I've read them and I've enjoyed reading them but I would probably never read them again and it I don't know it it feels wasteful to have stuff like that um and I don't know like I'd rather have I'd rather there be more copies of things that I've enjoyed reading that are circulated and out in the world that people can have access to um, than me just like holding on to all that stuff. So all of that being said, um, in the spirit of thinking of things that I could potentially downsize, uh, I have been eyeing my Murakami collection uh, because I'm pretty sure that I have a copy with maybe the exception of one, one or two books. I think I'm pretty sure that I have a copy of everything that has been translated and published in English. And um, Murakami held a very, a very uh, important place in my sort of literary pantheon when I was in, uh, I guess, kind of in, in grad school. Um, I think that's when I was introduced to him and sort of began devouring his work. Um, and there are a couple of novels of his that really, like, they stick with me. But I've begun sort of rethinking his position in my in my pantheon um, because of some, I don't know, like the way that he treats uh, women characters and the way that he, he writes about, or maybe not necessarily he writes about sex, but the way that sex is employed in a lot of his, of his works, which I will sort of get into a little bit um, in my review of After the Quake. Um, but I don't know. There's just there there are elements of it that feel sort of like weird and like weirdly masculine, and in a way that makes me feel kind of uncomfortable and gross. Um, and also just critically thinking of his of his novels, and you know maybe his uh, his falling into a pattern, which is something else that I will talk to in my review. Um, but I wanted to. I wanted to to like think more critically or, or think more um, yeah I guess think just in general more critically about like his placement in in the his position in in the the readers that I or the not the 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 authors that I hold in a particular esteem or the the works that I hold in a particular esteem um, so on top of reading a lot of poetry books that I need to get through I've been sort of side side glancing at at his stuff. Um, so I figured that I would start with a collection that I remember feeling sort of sort of as an outlier from the other things of his that I've read, um, which, like, after the quake. Because um, he has published, I believe, th three other short story collections. Um, and just a shit ton of novels, and I think a, like one or two nonfiction pieces or books. Um, but uh, 
as I mentioned a number of times, uh, the one that I would like, the one that I am going to review uh, for this episode is After the Quake, uh, which is a relatively slim short story collection. It is only a hundred and like forty-seven pages long. Uh, it consists of just six stories, none of which are all too long, um, as compared to uh, Blind Willow Sleeping Woman, which is pretty hefty or the elephant vanishes which is also a fairly hefty collection um but one of the things that i think distinguishes after the quake from the rest of his of his written works um is that it is a collection of linked stories and linked should be is a term that is used very very loosely um they all the the linking element between them all on its face is the uh really devastating earthquake that hit japan in the uh in kobe in 1995 um so all of these stories at least in some way involve that earthquake um and a lot of the stories it's sort of just a peripheral thing like there'll be a character whose parents live there or a character whose wife and children live there that they are estranged from um but because of that it feels like it's a little more i mean on on its face there is the earthquake and that is the unifying thing but there is also um some thematic and some sort of some image unity that exists throughout all of it um so in that respect it reminds me a lot of um the martian chronicles by ray bradbury and invisible cities by ito calvino um not to the extent that like the martian chronicles it's it's you know like all of these short stories are taking place within the same universe sort of like year after year after year um so work you know and i i feel like with with the martian chronicles all of the stories are working to build up this sort of world or it's it's all the the major the major amount of work that's being done is is world building and creating a a mars that feels coherent and feels like it's it's being subjected to generations and generation of uh terraforming by humans um and also imperialism and genocide because they um you know, they straight up displace and kill the native Martians that live there. Oh, um, and before I continue, this is something that um, I never thought that I would have to do on an episode of So Poetry Reviews, but um, spoiler warnings, I'm going to be talking about uh, each of the six stories individually and after the quake, and I will be getting into some like plot details a little bit. Um, so, I, I don't know. I, I have... I'm a person that, that does not really mind spoilers um, because for me it's just sort of like plot. It's just the how things happen or I guess it's, it's more, sorry, I misspoke. It's, it's what happens. It's not really how it happens because um, like if I find out what happens in a movie, that's great. But I'm, you know, I'm interested in like the cinematography or, you know, like the acting and how the characters get emotionally from one place to another instead of just like oh this person dies it's like okay well you know like what's the circumstances behind that how how does this person's death color the rest of the story whatever um so i i play pretty fast and loose personally with spoilers but since i will be getting to plot things if 
you if you would like to not have know what happens in these stories um maybe go read the collection first <laughs> before listening to this um yeah i never thought i'd have to give a, a spoiler review because with with poetry you can't you can't really spoil a poem because they don't operate in that same space but anyway i wanted to mention it because you know i just i sort of spoil of a little bit of uh, martian chronicles so this maybe should have came beforehand but eh. um and so martian chronicles is you know humans colonizing mars um invisible cities is uh marco polo talking to genghis khan about all of the other cities that he has visited um so in that respect, because even though the, the cities are all unique and all individual and they're very, very different from each other, the fact that it's, it's all sort of the, the linking or the unifier is that it's, it, these are all stories being told to a ruler or to Genghis Khan by Marco Polo. Um, so, you know, you can maybe get into questions of reliable narrator and all that stuff, but that's like, so because of that all of the stories are presented in a way that feels unified because it, it it's all being presented in the voice of marco polo um these after the quake is not super like that each each story deals with a very different set of characters they all have their own sort of tone and their own sort of voice but there is a i don't know there are like colors that feel like they are um they extend across the book and there's I, I will get into the themes later but there are some sort of major themes that that tend to pop up in in all of them in a sort of um similar way that characters think about and relate to those themes um it also reminds me reading it reminds me of certain concept albums that i've heard um like crack the sky by mastodon is very much a concept album um, it is about sort of this this one story and this one experience, um, and all the songs work sort of in conjunction and in support of that story. Um, but that you also have, um, so that is a very like plot, very um, yeah, I guess like plot thematic concept album, um, or, or plot unifying concept album. But then you have I would consider Come Now Sleep by As Cities Burn as also a concept album, but that is more of a um, like I guess conceptual or emotional concept album. It's it's an album struggling with um, like faith in, in relationship to God and and the wondering of or the questioning of like does does this entity exist or is it just me speaking to myself in this space or what you know what does it mean that a friend of mine who I love is because he didn't believe in Jesus is in within the christian you know uh, belief system is going to help you know like that feels wrong and that feels incorrect and how do i how do i reconcile this belief that you know that this is what my my deity said is is the way and the only way that this is going to happen and you know the only way you can get to heaven but i feel like this person that i love that is dying deserves and should and would likely be there even though they're not so it's that to me is is a very like there's there's there is a color and there is a tone that is that is washed over the entire album so that that's the unifying aspect for that um also not to disappear by um daughter is also a very like 
tonal that that to me is maybe more a tonally um, concept album. If there is a, if there is an exploration of a particular like emotional color that the album does. Um, it also, in a way, kind of reminds me. If speaking of music, it reminds me of like video game or movie soundtracks that you have. You have a story that is being represented in musical movements. So each piece is its own sort of individual thing, but when you take them all together, you get the sense of this story, or at least the emotional beats of a story. Um, so like the soundtrack to um, Princess Mononoke, which I happened to catch in the theaters uh, a couple of months ago. You know, like listening to that soundtrack, if you've seen the movie, you can kind of catch the emotional beats or what's supposed to happen. So there is, you know, you can you can get the, maybe not the the plot story, but you can get the emotional underpinnings of what's what's going on. Um, it also, in an interesting way, reminds me of chapbooks, which I, I talked to uh, Lindsay Lesby last, I guess it was last episode, um, about how um, chapbooks to me feel like they are more thematically unified than a lot of the, the full-length collections that I've led, that I've read. Um, and I think because it's, I don't, at least in my experience, it's easier to it's easier to write, you know, like 15, 20, maybe 30 poems about a particular subject and have it be this sort of independent, unifying thing than trying to stretch that out to like 70 or 80 poems. I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming that there are experiences and there are things that, that are topics that are big enough to contain that. But a lot of the time... Like if I'm dealing with something, it'll happen in a spurt, and I can I can knock out like five, ten poems about it, and that's at least for that time, that's the thing. Um, and they they can exist in their own sort of I don't know their own small little little unit, and that's some of the some of the more maybe like loosely related chapbooks that I've that I've read or loosely conceptual chapbooks that I've read feel give me the same feelings after reading them as I, as I experienced with after the quake. Um, so since, since we're talking about Murakami, I feel like I should sort of preempt um, a, a bigger discussion of sort of his, I don't know, maybe his, his tropes. Um, there is a, um, an image that I've seen floating around the internet, um, which I will put in the link, to the description of this of this episode called uh, Murakami Bingo, um, and it's you know it's a bingo sheet, and it lists all of the. Uh, let me see if I can list off uh, some of the the spaces. Okay, so um, one space is mysterious woman. One space is ear fetish. Uh, there's a dried up well. Something vanishes. Feeling of being followed. Supernatural powers. Urban ennui. Old jazz records. Old classical records. Unexpected phone call. Precocious teenager. Cooking. Speaking to cats. Parallel worlds. Weird sex. Vanishing cats. Faceless villain. Unusual name. Uh, chick kid book cover which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the writing but is a sort of unifying uh, aspect of of his work um, so if you if you have read a lot of his his maybe more recent novels this um, the Murakami bingo you can probably fill in fairly well um, I feel like 
his short story collections give him a little a little more room to to kind of play around with stuff. Um, but you, if you read his his work, there are certain signifiers that you can look out for. One of them being um, a passive or very reactive main character, um, which my friend Vu Tran um, wrote. He wrote recently a an article for VQR online or a VQR, um, which I believe is the Virginia Quarterly Review, and it's, it's a part of their online thing called uh, "Under the Murakami Spell," which I'll put a link into a link of in the description. Um, but he, uh, where is he wrote something about the the sort of passive, um, the passive quality of of the of the of the main characters which i found right before oh, okay so if you read a lot of murakami novels um, most of the protagonists are relatively passive sort of reactive young men or young to middle-aged men that seem to just kind of go with the flow of life um so view vu writes and i quote um, his typically bland passive hero is a kind of faceless man in his very ordinariness, uh, both an everyman and a blank slate, thoroughly susceptible to the outlandish mysteries that will send him on his solitary journey of transformation. So lots of Murakami novels also, there's a moment where there's some sort of weird supernatural mysterious thing that happens that the main characters tend to not question and they just kind of go along with and that uh, usually results in them going on some sort of uh, trans transformative journey uh, themselves. Um, Vu continues, uh, As readers, we follow the journey just as blindly, down seemingly endless corridors of tantalizing questions. Murakami wants us to turn the page, of course, but, he also, but he's also investigating the very nature of questions themselves and how they vitalize us. Because um, both the... A little bit before this, uh, Vu was talking about um, that there is a there's a really palpable sense of like mystery and intrigue in around a lot of Murakami's work, um, like in the stories themselves. Um, Vu writes, um, at his best, Murakami ushers you casually into the escalating drama of questions uh, where normalcy struggles against the weight of curiosity, which I think is a pretty um, a pretty good. Uh, sort of like blanket or uh, I don't know yeah I guess blanket description of, of Murakami's work um, so you have the passive main character um, you have a, a wife or a person that it's close to the main character who just randomly vanishes um, which happens a whole lot in After the Quake um, you have there's usually like random purely physical sex or like intimate but not in a way of like romantically intimate it's like two 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 people or two characters coming together in ways that are that's like i don't know like low-key for both of them like no feelings are being developed no nothing it's just sort of like they enjoy each other's company they enjoy each other's bodies they tend to have like pretty good sex but it's it feels almost anonymous even though the characters tend to know each other um, usually lots of like young to middle-aged men shacking up with um, married women um, but on the flip side of that you also have um, 
rephrase that. Oh, um, disturbingly intimate uh, or spiritual or transformative sex that sometimes takes place in like a dreamscape. Um, and this is this is one of the things that, like I mentioned earlier, um, that I've been sort of rethinking my the esteem that I give Murakami in in his novels in his works. Um, because there's a there's a huge question that I've I've come up against of is are these moments of like transformative sex uh, consensual or not? Because a lot of times it happens in dreams. On Kafka on the Shore, it happens with a character that is like sleepwalking. Um, so it's there there are these sort of like weird lines that it's it's hazy and it it it's it, I can't tell. Because I know that Murakami himself might not hold these views. It might just be, you know, like a, a character or this is how they would describe it. But I can't figure out where Murakami stands on it. And that kind of bothers me, even though I know that there is a, a, a or the, the argument to separate the, the work from the author. But the fact that I don't really know, like, where what his view of that is, it, it just it, it bothers me and it makes me feel kind of skeezy. Um, so there's that. Um, on top of that, you have um, women characters that that usually are there to serve sort of like the function and the journey of the main sort of passive male character. Um, they, you know, like they'll pop in, they'll do some like weird sex stuff with them, and then they'll kind of send them on their way. Um, a lot of his novels don't have... Um, women or female leads. Um, 1Q84 does. Uh, there's also um, another prominent woman character in the in the um, in the character of Ari, I think is her name. Um, but she is more she is a more of a, like a seer seer or an oracle. Um, and there's some like weird sex involving her too, despite the fact that she's like underage, but she's acting as like a spiritual conduit of another character it that's like that's the 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 sort of like boundary line that i'm like i feel like you're crossing into some some not cool territory um murakami you should you should maybe check on that um but i like i don't know it, it feels like sex is either this sort of like casual almost anonymous even though the characters know each other thing or it's presented in a way that is like it's not really about the sex. It's this other thing, um, which in and of itself feels like it's weird because I don't know, like I don't, it sex is, shouldn't be put on this pedestal. It was like this like transformative, whatever thing. I don't know. Um, but it's, it's very rarely shown in like a, in like a purely consensual, loving, intimate way between two like emotionally healthy individuals. Um, there is also uh, light to moderate, supernatural, extra natural, or unexplained phenomena. So, you know, in Kafka on the Shore, you have a character that can talk to cats who talk back to him. You also have the character of Johnny Walker, who is this, like, cat-murdering, like, shaman shadow character thing. Um, in uh, Wild Sheep Chase, you have the sheep that embodies people that, like, leads them to power. In 1Q84, you have the... Um, the little people, um, in oh, there's an, oh, in the wild and um, Wind Up Bird Chronicles, you have like 
the the parallel world and that's that's also a thing that you there's lots of like slipping into these these parallel worlds or a world that exists sort of concurrent but out of phase with our world that you can somehow access um uh there is also a sort of like general acceptance of or at least acquiescence to unexplained or absurd events um which there is one story in particular in after the quake that very much embodies this that there are these like i, I mentioned i think i may have mentioned this before that things are sort of just like or maybe i didn't but um the weird supernatural stuff is presented and there's not really a whole lot of question about it. There's not really a like, oh, I, this is a weird thing. Why is this happening? It's sort of just like, oh, okay. There are little people now. And they're making cocoons out of the air. All right, let's go with that. Or uh, like, oh, you can talk to cats. And you have to flip over this stone in order to keep this weird slug thing from, you know, causing havoc in our world. All right, let's go with it. Which feels i don't know i think that that's one of the things that i that attracted me to murakami's work is that there is a there is a presentation of things that are objectively absurd but there is not a there is not a typical reaction to that absurdity it's a, it's a um which i don't know like on the one on one hand feels like that is totally not how people would react if if suddenly they if they met an old man who could talk to cats who could actually talk to cats and not thinking them like taking that at face value, not thinking that they were delusional, but accepting like, all right, okay, you can talk to cats. Cool. Um, but on the other hand also feels like that. I don't know. Like there's some emotional truth that I feel with in regard to that, that, you know, like, I don't know, like I've encountered a lot of like strange enough things in my own life that, you know, if things are just if they're off kilter enough to be that level of of absurd or supernatural like i think i would just kind of accept it i think i would just kind of go with it um and maybe that's because i think that at least for me and i don't know if this is the case for other people but i'm i'm willing to bet that more that maybe more often than not this is that there is a sort of maybe because we've been conditioned with you know like comics and, and movies and a, a world like seeing snippets of imaginative worlds that exist or in that things like that could exist in there might be this underlying um conditioning that we have to that we just sort of expect that that's out there somewhere um or maybe maybe it's just that we expect that there is i mean before movies and stuff there were fables and there were folklores and there were you know like tall tales and stuff that i think that it might just be ingrained maybe as a as an aspect of human nature to just expect that there is something maybe beyond what we know or we see um and it it feels like with Murakami, the characters that like the main characters that are that are usually involved are wrapped up into the the weird supernatural stuff. Um, it feels like it's a validation of that sort of oh yeah I always sort of I always I think I always sort of knew that that the world was like this because in one Q eight four you know a character climbs down a set of like I don't know. Um, stares off of an interstate and winds up in another world and just kind of rolls with it you know they're like oh okay well 
I'm here now. And they, I mean, they eventually do get back to, well, they at least get out of that world. Um, but there's not, you know, there's not that sort of existential panic or, um, I don't know, which I feel like in the West, with a lot of Western works or maybe Western thought, that, that coming up with the absurd or coming up with the, that sort of like, oh, the world is not at all what I expected it to be, or maybe I had an inkling that it was like this, but I, I didn't really know. You know, it's, it, in the West, it feels like that would be uh, met with a sort of existential uh, undoing of oneself, i.e., you know, uh, Lovecraft's characters. Um, but it, it, at least in Murakami's novels, the characters are just like, okay, this is okay, this is my reality now. Which I think on the like what Vu said, like on the on, I think is an element of with the with a passive sort of ordinary, bland, maybe blank slate of a of a uh, protagonist. It's it's easy to to step into that role and to just allow yourself to be swept through. Um, But moving on, um, they also typically end ambiguously. Uh, there are not a whole lot of works that I've read by Murakami that I would say end on a uh, up note, um, and even fewer that I've read that I don't, maybe even none that I've read that end on like a happy note. Um, most of the time, it's maybe like neutral, <laughs> neutral territory, or it ends on a down note, potentially, depending upon how you interpret an ambiguous ending. Um, but all of that being said, and since I'm already like half hour into this episode, uh, I would like to move on to the actual stories in this collection. Uh, the first one being UFO in uh, Kushiro, which um, feels like a like prototypical Murakami work. Uh, there is a passive, generally passive uh, protagonist. There is a wife that vanishes. There is some like casual anonymous sex between two people that actually kind of know each other. Um, um, but there are some supernatural elements. There's a box that a main, that the main character uh, Kimura is asked to deliver to his co-worker's sister and he never finds out what's inside and towards the uh, right right at the end of the story the the person that he kind of hooked up with tells him that the oh I actually have the quote um, that the box contains um, So they're they're just kind of hanging out in bed after having sex, and um, Kimura, having not thought about this before, is like, "I wonder what's inside of that box." And his uh, Shimao, which is his his partner for for that time, um, is like, "Oh, I wonder, like, why are you thinking about it?" He's like, "I don't know. I just started thinking about it." Um, and she tells him that. Uh, the box contains the something that was inside of you. You didn't know it. Oh, so he, he all throughout the story, he said he's been feeling like there's something missing inside of him. And his, his wife, when he, when she leaves him because so she, um, she watched a lot of coverage of the Kobe earthquake and she stayed glued to the TV for like a week. And then she left and she left him a note and said that 
like I can't live with you anymore. Living with you is like living with a chunk of air and I'm just, I, I can't deal with it. So he's been thinking about that and he's been sort of just like aimless up until this point. Um, and so his, his partner says, uh, it's because the box contains the something that was inside of you. Uh, you didn't know what it, that you carried it here and gave it to Keiko, which is the, his co-worker's sister, with your own hands. Now you'll never get it back. And it's said with, with such like matter-of-factness and the, the rest of the, the piece is written in such a way that there's the, like, you kind of don't know if that's true or not. And in response, he, he gives her a uh, very frightening look and says that he, um, he was on the verge of committing an extreme act of violence. And upon seeing that, the, his partner is like, oh, no, no, I was just joking. I, was just, I said the first thing that popped in my head. Sorry, I, it was a joke. Um, but so there's, there's that, like, aside from that, there's not a whole lot of supernatural in it. But again, it's, this is the sort of thing that in another one of his stories or in a novel that like, that could be true. And you don't really kind of know if it is or not. Um, it also like his reaction to her saying that is something that I, I find interesting. Cause I'm, I, I wonder if he knows that what she says is true and therefore he reacts with such rage and such anger or if because this is a such an important thing to him like figuring out what's going on inside of him he's so angry that she react that she would joke about or make light of something like that um but i yeah so reading i don't know it's it's after if you'd not if you've never read this collection before and you pick up the the book and you read the first short story, I feel like you would be kind of primed to experience a sort of run-of-the-mill Murakami short story collection. That's that's sort of how it sets it up. But um, he he does some like interesting maneuvers or subversions after that. Um, the beginning of this actually has a very similar tone to the wind-up bird chronicles like it's a similar sort of character it's a similar sort of you know like the wife leaves uh there's a there's a question of like well you know what do i do about that how do i how do i get along you know just sort of continuing along continuing throughout your your life and your your existence sort of more or less um or unmoored i guess uh but not really having a whole lot of concern about that um so i give which i guess could um could be explained as a, like an emotional shutting down on the inside. Um, but yeah, and it just, it feels like it's a pretty run of the mill Murakami short story. It has it, like, it has a really ambiguous ending. It's, it's kind of dour. It, um, it hits it. If you were, if you were doing the Murakami bingo, you would fill in a number of spaces, but that is sub really kind of subverted by the next short story in the collection, uh, Landscape with Flatiron, um, which, interestingly enough, so there are like three main characters, two of them are male, one of them is, is female, but she occupies, a, a, she occupies a, about as much of a, of a significance of, of the space as, a, as one of the other characters, which feels sort of unusual for for murakami um it's also um I'm, i'll read from my notes um it's a much quieter story 
um, it's about uh, three people watching a, um, a bonfire on the beach, um, which, like, again, sort of ostensibly, that's, that's what it is. It's just this quiet moment between um, two friends and one of their boyfriends who gets up and leaves, like, halfway through because he feels sick. Um, so it's, it's a sort of, like... I would be really interested to see this shot or filmed or done as a short film um, because I think there's there's a there'd be a lot of room to sort of let the fire and let the space and let the quiet really fill in the sort of like emotional moments. Um, it feels like a sort of elliptical rumination on death and specifically death as just as an ending or as a, a stoppage of a thing um, because the 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 woman main character Junko. Um, is sort of preoccupied with the Jack London story, um, how to build a, how to build a fire, um, and she wrote a paper on it when she was in high school. And um, she, upon upon finishing the story, um, she said that. Um, she could feel the man's fear and help. So this, so at the end of the story, a man is a, the main character of how to build how to build a fire. Is trying to build a fire so that he doesn't freeze to death. To which um, Junko has these revelations about that she could feel the man's fear and hope and despair as if they were her own. She could uh, sense the very pounding of his heart as he hovered on the brink of death. Most important of all, though, was the fact that the man was fundamentally longing for death. She knew that for sure. She couldn't explain how she knew, but she knew that from the start. Death was really what he wanted. Um, he knew that it was the right ending for him, and yet he had to go on fighting with all of his might. He had to fight against the, an overwhelming adversary in order to survive. So this is a sort of beginning or maybe the introduction of some of the, the bigger themes running through this this piece of the idea of or the ideas of that there is a death that is fitting for you that there is a like death as like a destiny or as an ending um but something that is that despite the fact that you know that this is the the, the correct thing for you or your correct path to struggle against it or to fight against it um because you are still alive and you don't, you know, like life struggles against death. Um, <coughs> and um, a, another chunk of right, potentially the, the, maybe the connection that Junko shares with uh, Miyake, who is an older uh, dude who is the builder of the bonfires, who lives in this particular town um, because that's where the best driftwood comes up. Um, he has a nightmare where um, he is locked in a refrigerator. That's sort of a, a premonition that he has lived with all of his life, and he knows that that's how he will die. Um, so at one point, he and, and John are talking about, you know, like, do you know... How, he asks her if she knows how she's going to die, and she asks him the same thing. Um... But he, he mentions that, um, in talking about his dream, he mentions that um, premonitions can stand for something else sometimes. Um, 
and the thing that they can stand for can be a lot more intense than reality. So there's another introduction to the idea that things are not necessarily themselves. They can point to something else besides themselves, or they can, you know, like they can be a more, um, like if there's a snake in your dream, it's not necessarily a literal or like a, in a premonition, it's not necessarily a literal snake, but it's the sort of maybe emotional equivalent of, of a snake or a thematic similarity to a snake or something like that. Um, and he also mentions um, there's such a thing as, uh, as a way of living that's guided by the way a person's going to die. So the idea that which in a weird way might be considered like a sort of fate or a sort of destiny, that there is this, this ending that you know is out there and a, a life that you, are, that you are catering for yourself sort of in response to that ending, be it, you know, like acceptance that that's the way that you're going to end or the, the struggling against that, that end. Um... In a little bit later, um, Junko expresses that she feels like she is empty inside. She's completely hollow hollowed out, which feels like a sort of um, harken back to the main character of the first story, who is is described as a as a chunk of air, um, which is uh, leads me to another quote from the uh, Vu Tran article. Um, in which um, that, that Vu uh, poses that Murakami seems to believe that we all live essentially the same experience, that we are individualized merely in our way of, uh, in the way our own consciousness, consciousness chooses to see and interpret the world, which I feel is represented in in this short story collection that you have characters that that seem to be living a similar existence or or having similar experiences that that are unique sort of to them on how they relate to the experience um you have kimura in the in the first i think his name is kimura in the first story who sort of just kind of goes along with with his emptiness and then you have Junko who, or Kimura goes along with his emptiness and doesn't really touch it and doesn't really necessarily do anything with it. Um, it's just, it's sort of just there for him and it's, he's not, he doesn't really interact with it. Whereas Junko, when she comes to the, 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 the pronouncement that she is hollow inside, she, she breaks down and she weeps. And it feels like there's this sense of coming face to face with um, I don't know, with like a hard truth, which is another, a little after the, um, the quote that I just read from Vu, he writes this, that we erect boundaries, and Murakami suggests to make sense of the inexplicable, things like death, love, the subconscious. In the process, we also conceal the scariest truths from ourselves. And it's only in crossing and even erasing those boundaries that we can live comfortably with those uncomfortable truths. And it, it feels like in, in the moment where, where June confesses that she's empty inside, she is coming up to that boundary or coming, may have crossed the threshold into this truth. Um, 
and it ends on a again a sort of ambiguous note but it it feels at least for me that there's a there's a level of like upness to it which is the first of the stories in this collection that feels like there is a there's a at least a slight hope at the end that something will be different um but yeah i it's i think of all of the stories in this collection uh landscape of Flatiron, i think is is my is my favorite um because it's I don't know. There's it feels like sort of a, a like a slow burning fire. It's it's really quiet and then there's a lot of a lot of um, things that on the surface feel like it's or at least ostensibly feel like it's it's a very shallow story and then if it sits with you for a bit, if it feels like it, it sinks in and it, it gets deeper and deeper. Um, and it also it it hits on a lot of I think the sort of main themes of this of this collection the idea of of fate and the acceptance of fate or the the choosing of you know like or like choice in general or that um you know like that death is potentially an action and if you that choice is life or that actively doing something or actually choosing is life. Um, it's also interesting that this is, I think, maybe one of the only stories that I've encountered that's written from the point of view, at least in part, from a person who vanished. Because Junko ran away from home, and she left a note that said, you know, like, I'm fine, don't come looking for me. Um, but she she is the character that leaves. So I wonder, all of the wives and all of the other characters in Murakami novels and short stories that vanish... I'm, it would be really interesting for me to, to read stories of what happens to them because you get the story of the, of the person that they leave behind and sort of what they go through. But I, I can't think of one aside from... Well, no, I guess Kafka on the Shore, the main character, does that too, in a way. But the, his, his dad doesn't notice or maybe doesn't care. Um, so it's like he's not really... He's... he's He's vanishing from an, an absence that was already there versus Junko, who left a, a mother and a father. Um, so I thought I thought that that was a an interesting second story to have after a sort of prototypical like first story in this collection, and then you have one that that feels like a subversion. Um, the next story is all God's children. Ah, all God's children can dance. Um, which is also another weird subversion of the sort of the presentation of the supernatural and the acceptance of that. Um, because the story um, is about a, a young man who is, does not have a father. And his mother claims that he was conceived by God because she had an affair with a um, OBGYN who practiced immaculate contracept contraception, and she got pregnant by this doctor three times. And on the third time, um, she had an abortion the first two, and on the third time, um, the doctor was like, "I, this is this can't be true. This can't like. There's no way that I'm the father because my my contracept contraception." Um, skills are unparalleled. So the woman, the in 
and trying to find solace winds up with like a, a Christian group. And um, one of the elders of this group tells her that's like, oh, it, don't you see? That's like it, it, this this doctor was true. There's no way that he could have he could have uh, you know gotten you pregnant. So it had to have been God. Um, so it's it's interpreted it's interpreted as a sort of like spiritual aspect, but it's also it's presented in a, a sort of like this is a this it's a it's a denial or a delusion that there is this the the um, the presence of the supernatural in the story is not treated as this is a just a thing that I accept. It's it's presented as like oh this is a this is a denial and a diversion to not have to deal with the sort of root issue involved in all of this. Um, there is. I don't know. It it's this also feels like a, a aside from that it feels like a relatively prototypical um, Murakami main character. Um, there's some there's some weird sex stuff that happens with his mom, and then later the elder admits having like cravings of the mom's flesh. Um, but the story is essentially uh, Yoshia, who's the main character, who is claimed to have, his mom claims he was conceived by God. Um, is on his way to work and he finds he sees a man that is looks like the doctor that his mom had described to him earlier as the doctor who she had an affair with who could not have possibly gotten her pregnant um and he decides to follow the doctor um no i'm sorry i think he's on his way home from work um and he sees the doctor and decides to follow the doctor and the doctor you know like takes a subway line all the way out of the city run goes to this like weird rundown part of some prefecture and um walks down this small alleyway that opens up to a baseball field and vanishes and the main character yoshia goes to this baseball field and decides to dance his frustrations out in a, a weird almost like homage to um footloose in a way which is something that i didn't put together until just now um but i th i think for me the most striking aspect of this is the the supernatural the fact that the supernatural in the story is is presented in such a, a subverted way as it is in most of the other almost like I think every other thing that I've read of Murakami where there are these weird things that happen that are beyond the realm of, of what we accept in like, you know, the tangible world that's just sort of accepted and not questioned. And this one, it's, um, it's not seen like that at all. Um, but there is a, a moment towards the end where Yoshia has this, almost transcendental connection moment, maybe enlightenment, um, which feels like the, the, the maybe true supernatural element. Cause you know, like the doctor vanishes, he doesn't know where he is, but there is, there is the, the, the introduction of this maybe like false supernatural. And at the very end, there is a, at least internally, it feels like Yoshia has this moment where he's connected to a world that is, larger than him and it that um i don't know that it, that exists always existed around him but he didn't have access to um there's also 
an interesting discussion sort of of like of fate and of destiny that that if if Yoshia actually is the son of God like what does that mean for him like does he is he going to accept that fate is he going to to struggle against it um and is it it's presented sort of at the end in a way that I've never really thought about before that that acceptance of fate um, but in a more like nihilistic or pessimistic view of that that you just you because because of fate if fate exists and you don't have a choice really about it then what does it matter sort of a, a way which is I don't I don't I can't I don't know if I've ever encountered in other media that, that that's, it's presented in that sort of like pessimistic way. Um, but it also, be, it to me, begs the question of like, is... And this is a sort of a, an overarching thought that I had about the entirety of the book in dealing with and thinking about like fate. Um, that... Um, let me find it on my notes. That are you, if you, if you refuse fate, or is, is there a difference between kind of going with the, the flow of fate, like unthinkingly, you just, you just acquiesce to, to that, to the stream and to the currents, um, and choosing to accept it, like choosing to accept your role, um, because you are ultimately doing the same things. You're allowing yourself to be affected by the same things. So maybe it's just like an internal positioning that's a difference, or maybe it's a, um, I don't know, like a distinction without a difference or just difference without distinction. I'm not sure which way that, that phrase goes. Um, and then what happens if, if you decide to not accept that fate and you decide to struggle against it? Like in the end, does that, does that matter? Does that does that does that show that there's? I don't know that like if you can struggle against fate and you can change it, was that was the initial fate really your fate or was your fate always to change your fate or is it is it is it not as like is fate not as concrete as it's often presented as that it's it's like if you are on a particular path and you allow yourself to be moved by the currents of those paths you will wind up at a at a very particular ending like the 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 destined ending of that particular path but there are many opportunities for you to get off of that path and for you to wind up elsewhere so that you know like if you if you make a if you're at a fork or if if there's a, like an off ramp and you decide to take that off ramp and you know now you're on a path to another destined fate but there's an off-ramp off of that that might bring you back to the original you know it's like there, there are these all these it's like a maze that constantly shifts as you're walking down the path that the things that you decide you know like in hindsight looking behind it you could see oh this is the sort of like relatively straight path that i followed from point a to point b but in the moment there's all these shifting things that happen and that's that's a um that's not something that I, I typically think about when I think about Murakami's works, like that level of kind of low-key beginning to, to question and beginning to poke at the, um, maybe the monolith that is viewed as like fate or, you know, like destiny or 
Um, or if it like if it doesn't matter and you're just you're just on this ride, and you can either be you can struggle against it and you're still going to be on this ride. You can just let yourself be moved and you're still on this ride, or you can accept that you are you know, like and make an active choice to be on this ride. You all still potentially will you will all of the, all of those different aspects or all those different um, options will still lead you at the same place, but maybe the the experience of being swept by the currents you know will be different because of how you are positioned to it internally um so i don't know it was it was a it was uh just unexpected i i was not i don't remember thinking about that the first time that i that i read through this collection and specifically the story um so it was interesting to catch it on this time and to, to, to have to stop afterwards and to just like really think about all, trying to, to think through all of that. Um, which leads me to the next story, number four, Thailand, which is atypical of Murakami because it also um, has a woman protagonist um, who... Um, is living a life that feels sort of similar to the passive masculine or the pass the passive male characters, um, which was a, a weird sort of I don't know it it felt like messing with gender a little bit in a in a weird way a weird maybe like refreshing way I don't know um, but this story is about a woman who is a oh I think like a thyroid researcher who. Um, is going to Singapore for a conference, the World Thyroid Conference, um, and then decides to have like a two-week vacation or maybe a week after that um, uh, somewhere in Bangkok. And so the, the thyroid convention is done away with in a couple of paragraphs, and the rest of the story is about her being at this, uh, this very sort of secluded resort um, and the the driver that was um, hired by one of her her colleagues to sort of like take care of her for for the, her duration of her uh, vacation, which if you have read uh, Wind Up Bird Chronicles is a is a role that feels very similar to Nutmeg um, in helping out the main character sort of like after he after he buys the house and goes down into the well and stuff, but the the sort of like relatively mysterious kind of unknown caterer to the needs that seems to somehow like Peter naturally or supernaturally know what the person needs, which knows what their, what their ward needs. Um, which I don't know, like that in and of itself doesn't necessarily feel like it's a, it's a supernatural thing because I assume that if you work in that sort of job for as long as these characters have, you will probably just get that sense um, but um, he is sort of the gateway to the supernatural that happens because there's one scene where she goes to see a um, like a spiritual healer uh, dream interpreter oracle whatever you want to call her um, that Nimit her, her handler or brings her to um, who similar to um the uh what was her name 
the partner, the kind of random sex partner um, in UFO to Kushiro, how she makes a pronouncement of of Kimura's dream, this uh, spiritual healer um, has a premonition about a dream that um, Tsutsuki will have. Um, but there is also talk of like death. Um, Setsuki's former husband lives in Kobe, and towards the end of the, the short story, um, she feels like she emotionally feels like she made the earthquake happen because she wished that her husband or her ex husband would die you know, a horrendous death. Um, but, um, She, at one point um, in the story, says that she feels like her life was... It's like she didn't have to struggle. She didn't have to fight for anything in her life. It just sort of happened until her dad, her father died of cancer, and then um, everything was derailed. Um, I might actually have the quote for that. Um, maybe not. But she feels like her life was derailed or that like she, she switched tracks... Um, and she didn't know how to get her life back onto their the actual rails. Um, which feels similar to Kafka on the Shore and 1Q84. There, there are these moments of like, which gets me back to, brings me back to the whole question of fate that like you're on this path and you have a finite number of opportunities to potentially get off of the path. Um, so this Thailand for me feels like it if if um, all God's children can dance is a setting up of like there is a fate and this is the fate that you're on you know kind of no matter what Thailand for me feels like it's a it begins to question is that true is there one fate that any one person has uh, or that we all have or are there moments to you know like if your life is headed in one direction and something happens to knock you off of that path and you are now on a new path, you have a finite number of chances to get off of that new path back to like maybe the path you're originally on, or maybe at least just off of that path to something hopefully better. Um, because the, the uh, spiritual healer uh, tells Satsuki that there is a stone inside of her that she needs to get rid of. She will have a dream where a snake will come out of a vent she needs to hold on to that snake and not let go uh, until she wakes up because that snake will eat the stone that's inside of her, which is something that is necessary to happen for her to like live how she wants to live. Um, in very much towards the end of the, of the story, um, Namit, her handler, talks about how um, the reason that he brought... Setsuki to go see the healer is that uh, you see he tells her that you seem to always be dragging your heart along the ground from now on little by little you must prepare yourself to face death if you devote all of your future energy to living you will not be able to die well you must begin to shift gears a little a little at a time living and dying are in a sense of equal value which feels like a much more I don't know a much more accepting way of what um, Miyaki said in 
uh, landscape of flat iron, the idea that, that your life or that you that living can be sometimes colored or directed by the way that you die. And with Nimit, it feels like it's a instead of with um, Miyaki as a sort of like going with the flow and that that you are stuck in living, you're stuck in the rut of living your life that is um, that is controlled by how you die. Nimit feels like it's a it's a very intentional thing that you're like I'm shifting my life now to be not about living but more and more about death which in a in a weird way for me correlates with um i guess like the death with dignity dignity movement um the idea that if you're in hospice if you're at the end of your life to have control over um you know like potentially choosing to end your own life if you feel like the quality of your life will never improve or at least more of an emphasis on like hospice care or making making someone's end of life as comfortable or as like peaceful or as meaningful as is that that they can be or putting that putting that control into a patient's hand um so that they can they can deal with things on their own terms but that that shift in thinking from like oh i am living now to like oh i am i'm on my way out um and this is another short story in this collection that ends on what I feel like is a, is a hopeful note. Um, Satsuki is on a plane heading back to Japan, um, and she settles down to sleep. Um, and she said, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sleep. I'm going to wait for the dream. So there is a... Which is, I, I think, another sort of... Um, in, in a, a question or an issue that is brought up is like inactivity versus activity or, or like passivity versus active choice. And I feel like this, I feel like Thailand is very much about actively making choices to change or actively making choices to, to when you encounter the, there may be like the difficult truths of yourself to dedicate yourself to the intention to change. And I feel like with Junko in Landscape of Flatirons, uh, or Flatiron, she she gets to the point where she encounters the difficult truth. And I think that there's a moment of, of reconciliation or acceptance that that, that truth, that, that thing is true about her. But there's not it there's not a, a decision on her part of like what to do about it. And I feel like with Tsutsuki in Thailand, it ends with her making a choice to be to, to want to change, to want that stone to go away because she doesn't want to live like that anymore. She wants her life to not be on the rails that it's on when it was derailed after her, her father died. Um, which, interestingly or not, leads to the next question, or the next short story of Super Frog Saves Tokyo, which I think at its face is the most... There are elements of it that feel the most lighthearted to me because I feel like it is the most directly absurd story. There is the most absurd thing that is that happens in these stories. There is a giant frog that, that visits a guy named Katagiri, um, who talks with him and you know like affects things in his world. That is presented without without a a, a hint of oh this is farci farciful oh this is comical. 
it's like this is just what's happening. But I feel like because of that, the absurdity level is ratcheted up, and absurdity usually is is comical to me. Um, but that comicalness or that lightheartedness is like evaporates almost entirely by the end of the story um, because it's about um, Frog who has to travel under Tokyo to fight Worm to prevent him from causing an earthquake in Tokyo which would kill millions and millions of people. And he goes to this guy, Katagiri, um, because uh, in Frog's surveillance he has not found anyone in Tokyo who he would trust to help him win his fight against Worm. Um, and Katagiri, like, for his part, sort of like... He... It's interesting. He doesn't question the fact that there is a frog in his space. He sort of accepts that, but he he re- is more um, more like politely refusing to, to to acquiesce to what Frog wants him to do, or he at least just doesn't understand why Frog ch- chooses him. Um, but um, he's also he's just sort of a little suspect of like is it, I don't I'm not really sure if this is really going on, but he at least like. He entertains Frog, and then Frog proves to Katagiri that he is not a figment of Katagiri's imagination, and then Katagiri, almost immediately upon that, is like, all right, well, I mean, I don't really want to do this thing that you want me to do, but that's not really enough to get me out of doing it. Frog's like, nope. So from that point on, Katagiri is almost like, I mean, maybe not 100% on board, but he is dedicated to helping out Frog, Um, which is unfortunate because the night that he plans to help Frog, he is shot. Um, and he winds up in a hospital. And uh, after he wakes up, um, the nurse tells him that he was not shot. They just found him unconscious on the ground. So he's, you know, he's afraid upon waking up that he didn't help Frog. But Frog shows up looking very much worse for, worse for wear and tells him that he did, in fact, show up. Um which you know is a weird sort of like supernatural on top of supernatural, because Murakami likes to play around with like dreams and what actually happens in dreams. So, like, maybe the the person who shot Frog was an agent of I mean who shot Category was an agent of Worm. Maybe Category needed to be shot so that he could fully help Frog in a sort of like ethereal spiritual dream state and not physically being there. Um, because when he wakes up, there's no evidence, there's no gunshot wound, there's no nothing. The nurse says that they just found him passed out unconscious on the in front of the bank where he works. But Frog tells him, it's like, you know, we fought as hard as we could. You know, you were there. Frog needed him to essentially just cheer him on and give him encouragement. Um, and um, towards, the, towards the end, when Frog shows up, um, he is covered in sores. Um, he is very tired. He's, he's, he doesn't, he's, it's very difficult for him to hold a conversation with Katagiri. Um, and he at one point mentions that, um, he mentions that he was unable to defeat Worm. He fought to a stalemate. Um, he says, Frog says, we gave everything we had in the fight uh, to the bitter end. We used every weapon we can get our hands on. Uh, we used all the courage we could muster. Darkness was our enemy. 
Um, Word tried to frighten you away with phantoms, but you stood your ground, which is, you know, again, sort of a, a testament to Katagiri's just acceptance of all this weird shit. Um, and he says, eventually, or, yeah, he eventually says, I was unable, unable to defeat Worm, Frog said, closing his eyes. I did manage to stop the earthquake, but I was only able to carry our battle uh, to a draw. I inflicted injury on him and he on me. Uh, to tell you the truth, Mr. Katagiri, I am indeed pure frog, but at the same time, I am a thing that stands for a world of unfrog. And Katagiri is like, I don't understand that at all. And Frog's like, I don't either. It's just a feeling I have. Uh, what you see with your eyes is not necessarily real. My enemy is, among other things, the me inside me. Uh, inside me is the un-me. Um, and then he says, my brain's, my brain's growing muddy and he falls into a coma and then explodes out into um, like a bunch of worms and just gross crawling centipede-like creatures. Um, and then Category wakes up again um, and says that, you know, like, I, fro I, Frog's never coming back. He's He was... He returned to the mud. So again, there's this sense that, like, Frog's destiny was to fight Worm. Um, but, you know, like, he probably went into it knowing that he, he was going to sacrifice himself. Or maybe he didn't. But that idea of, like, he fully accepted his fate. He went into this thing and he he did this thing and it, it resulted in him being, you know being disintegrated so in the sense that like maybe it's a cycle maybe it it it's a that that frog and worm are integral parts of of the world or parts of the structure of the world and that their battle is a a like cosmic struggle cosmic cycle sort of a thing and that interestingly enough that story or super frog saves tokyo has that that feeling of it's it's much larger in scope it feels like a fable or maybe an allegory or um i don't know like the like american gods sort of things that there there are these there are these characters in these stories that are true in a sense but not literally literally true but are more importantly like emotionally true or like poetically true and that's what that's what Super Frog Saves Tokyo feels like to me that there is an element of the story that like, and when Frog even says that sometimes the things that you see with your eyes aren't real, um, that there is this, this level of, and even, you know, going back to what Miyaki said about uh, premonitions, that sometimes the premonition stands for something else. So I feel like even though we are presented with a literal giant frog fighting a literal giant worm, there is something else that's being talked about that it's it's really sort of a stand-in for another sort of struggle even though murakami gives you really no um no indication as to what that is it that's at least sort of the sense that i feel that the, that frog and worm are stand-ins for other things um but things that are potentially uh, inaccessible or unexplainable to humans it, and maybe that's the again the sort of idea of like fate or the, the like Vu said that there are these these 
larger, more uncomfortable truths that we we build boundaries against. And Katagiri, to his credit, did what Frog asked him to do, but he is still not uh, he's not privy to these these things that exist maybe beyond the scope of of human reason or human understanding. Um, and he does incidentally have a moment of like existential terror when Frog explodes into all these gross creatures. They swarm Katagiri, um, which, and knowing that he he helped Frog in his dream, and the fact that when he wake like he essentially wakes up from his dream meeting with Frog, when he visits when Frog visits him in the hospital, there is this sense that the thing that they were fighting against is not something that can be out and out destroyed, but maybe delayed, or maybe just subdued, or maybe. Um, maybe the idea or the goal is to continue to fight and struggle against it. Similar maybe to how Junko interpreted um, the character in How to Build a Fire, that there is that there is this thing that is coming for you that will claim you eventually, but like you you struggle against it because that's what you do. That's what you have to do. And you can't defeat it, but you you can you know you can you can you can wrestle with it for a bit, um, and the fact that you know Katagiri is is infested by these these creatures that you know like inside of him there is there is maybe an uncategiri there is a thing that if he is pure Katagiri there is a there is now inside of him uncategiri and maybe maybe it's not a he is he is infected by this thing now maybe it's more in his dream or premonition it's a acknowledgement that there is this thing that has always existed inside of you that you are now aware of exists inside of you um so i yeah i don't i don't know it again a sort of like on the surface it feels like it's a very straightforward like there's this big ass frog and he he kind of um conscripts this run-of-the-mill um, debt collector that, that works at a bank to help him fight this big-ass worm. But I, I feel like there's a lot more um, thematically going on with it. But it's themes that... <clears throat> it, it, are, it is chock-full of themes that I don't know if I would have necessarily picked up on had it not been in conjunction with the other stories in this collection. Um... The last one being Honey Pie, um, which is a story of um, Junpei and uh, Taka, uh, what's his, Takatsuki, and what is the mom's name? Oh, Sayoko. I'm probably not going to remember those, but so it's it's a story of. Um, three friends from college, two of whom got married, but they continue their sort of like three unit until um, Sayako has a child and then it's the four of them. And then Sayako and uh, Takatsuki, uh, I just read it. Yeah, Takatsuki, they were married, they break up. And it's sort of like in the, maybe like in the app, most of the story takes place in like a night and a day in the, a year or two after the couple broke up. Um, 
but it um, it feels a little bit like Blind Willow, Sleeping Woman, and a bit like <coughs> Norwegian Wood. That you have this unit of of three that functions as the unit of three, and if if one of those pieces leaves or is changed somehow, then the unit falls apart. Um, it is the most complete feeling of the story, um, which I, I'm, I'm not really sure exactly why, but it feels like it it's its own unique universe of a thing. Like the other stories feel like they maybe could continue or that there's maybe more happening sort of in the periphery around them but honey pie feels like like it's it's its own it's a unit in and of itself um it's also another kind of quiet story like landscape of Flatiron, because it's, it's basically about the interaction between john and his two friends and their daughter um and it presents these like small sort of intimate relationships and these moments of small intimate relationships it, it starts with junpei um telling uh sayoko's daughter a story to get her to go back to sleep um, because she also watched coverage of the Kobe earthquake and has since been having nightmares about Earthquake Man who tells her that he's going to uh, shove her, tells her and then tries to shove her into a small box, which terrifies her. So she wakes up and can't go back to sleep. So Sayoko um, calls Junpei to come over uh, because he is a writer and has picked up some odd jobs so that he can keep writing. Um, But um, it's also, it's a, it's a weird sort of atypical family unit, which is neat that like the other sort of supernatural and potentially absurd things that are, that are, that are given uh, space in these, uh, in these short stories, the atypical unit structure or family unit structure is also presented as this thing that's like, it works for them. And it's, you know, it might be unusual or unconventional, but it, it works. So whatever we're just going to accept it um it's also atypical of murakami stories that there is a a main character who is actively living the way that he wants to live like he's he's a short story writer um he has tried to write novels he can't but he's continuing to write short stories he's gotten published he's building up like a pretty healthy reading a readership um he's been shortlisted for a lot of awards um like I said, he's, he takes odd jobs to sort of like fill in the gaps of his income, but as soon as he makes enough for him to live, continue to live his admittedly like Spartan bachelor lifestyle, he stops. Um, he is inactive in one way, though, that when um, he and Sayoko and Takatsuki were in college and they formed their unit, um, Junpei fell in love with Sayoko but did not act on his feelings for her, and Takatsuki did, which wound up with them getting married um and i think as a result like he he mentions that all of his short stories um or maybe not he i guess this is the third person um but the narrator narrator mentions that um junpei short stories all more or less deal with like young unrequited love um that are relatively like straight like lyrical in in like interestingly written but are all sort of like conventionally plotted um which to me feels like junpei is sort of stuck in his emotional life in that moment in college where he he was hurt and didn't act on his on his feelings for sayoko 
I want to make sure that I'm getting. Yes. Okay. And we just want to make sure I was, I was pronouncing Sayoko's name correctly. Um, but um, yeah, so he's he's sort of stuck in this in this moment, um, and he's he is living a comfortable life and he's living the life that he wants. But it's I mean more or less what he wants. But he's he's not attained sort of where he wants to be as a, as a writer. Um, and so in that regard and in the regard of the sort of like the more or less small intimate portrait that's, that's painted of this, of this unconventional trio or I guess quattro of, of characters, um, there's not a whole lot of supernatural stuff that happens with the exception of the earthquake man, which if this story was kind of by itself, I would question whether or not Sala, who is the daughter, um, if it's just a dream or if he's actually real or if it's, you know, some weird combination of both. But given that it's in a collection of other short stories that sort of blur the line between that and, you know, given Murakami's sort of penchant with, with messing around with, with dreams and what's real and what's not, um, it, I really, I wonder if, if he's real or not, um, but it's he doesn't occupy really a big part of the story, um, except at the at the end um, when so at various points after Takatsuki and Sayoko broke up, Takatsuki tells Junpei, "It's like, hey, why don't you you know you don't have a girlfriend? Why don't you marry Sayoko? I know you love her. I don't. I couldn't imagine anybody else being the father of or being like another father to my kid." So why don't you do it? And Junpei's like, oh, man, I don't know. Fucking what? Uh, bleh. Um, but towards the end of the story, um, Junpei, Sayoko, and Sala go to the, the zoo. Um, Junpei tells Sala more of his story that involves two bears. that One sells honey. One you know, sells catches and sells salmon. They're friends. But the one that catches salmon all the salmon leave so he tries to make his his life elsewhere and gets trapped and put in a zoo um they go back to Sayoko's place they put Sala to bed um and there is a really I think of all of the all of the short story or all the the work of Murakami's that I've read it's like the most the most consensual sort of like intimate moment between two adults that are relatively well adjusted um, it doesn't last long because Sala walks in on them because the, she had another dream about the earthquake man who told her to go tell uh, Sayoko and Junpei that, uh, what does he tell her? That they're waiting. Uh, Sala says, the earthquake man, he came and woke me up. He told me to tell you... Um, yeah, he told me to tell you. He said the he has the box ready for everyone. Uh, he said he's waiting with the lid open. He said I should tell you that, and you'd understand. So there is at the sort of at the very end of this of this story, there is this threat. There is this like outside threat of you know like earthquake man. The sort of you know be it a, a stand-in for death, be it a, a stand-in for just like the forces of destruction and chaos that operate in the world. 
but this thing that is that is threatening this family or potentially threatening everyone that the earthquake in Kobe which um I think is maybe the the only time in this collection to to point that the earthquake in Kobe may have been like may have been a supernatural occurrence or may have been something other than just an, a a literal earthquake um but there is this threat similar to maybe to worm that there is this this threat that you might not ever be able to actually defeat but that you can prevent and stymie for a bit um and in response to that uh, sala sleeps with sayoko junpei sleeps on the couch but can't sleep and decides to you know um he gets up and sort of wanders around the apartment um and decides to in the morning ask sayoko to marry him um because he he can't wait like he doesn't it's it's he feels like it's it's dumb for him to wait any longer he also comes up with a new ending for the story that he was telling sala um and it ends with a paragraph that i would like to to maybe not read in full because i'm not a big fan of like the last line but um junpei after he after he decides to ask Sayoko to marry him and he wants to like to be a family with him with her and Sala uh says I want to write stories that are different from the ones that I've written so far Junpei thought I want to write about people who dream and wait for the night to end who long for the light so they can hold the ones that they love but right now I have to stay here and keep watch over this woman and this girl oh, fuck I'll read all of it I will never let anyone not anyone try to put them into that crazy box not even not even if the sky should fall or the earth crack open with a roar which i think of everything that i've read of, of murakami is the most like positive ending <laughs> that i've ever come across and it feels like it's it's a sort of ratcheting up of like in landscape with flat iron you have a character that comes to face to face with these sort of ugly or maybe insurmountable truths about the world about themselves whatever in thailand you have a, a character that that comes face to face with these with these hard truths and makes a decision to or at least is allows themselves to be open or makes the decision to be open to change and then you have junpei at the end of honey pie who has come up against these like ugly insurmountable truths and makes an active decision that he's going to change um that he's he's going to write things differently he's going to protect this woman and this this young girl that he loves um that he is willing to to act as that barrier against whatever the darkness or whatever those those forces are that that exist out in the world um and i think that it's it's really telling that up until now he's been writing stories about you know like young unrequited love because that's i think where he where he was up until now and then in this moment time has caught up to him or he has caught up to himself and wants to write about um people who dream and wait for the night to end who long for the light so they can hold the ones that they love like that's that's the world that he he wants to step into and he will conceivably step into the following morning but 
there you know like he that's where he wants to be those are that's the stories that he wants to write those are the people that he wants to write about which is coincidentally where he kind of arrives at but he also knows that in until then there is there is a a night that he that has to pass or however many hours it's probably early morning at this point um there's a, a certain amount of hours or a certain amount of darkness that he has to that he has to um endure and before he can he can have that moment in the sun and and um yeah or have that morning in you know, in the light and in the dawn and it i don't know there's there's something that that when i when i read that maybe not all the time but a lot, most of the time when i read it i get the sort of like asmr tingles um that it's something it feels so so powerful and so affirming especially with the the cast of like most of the other murakami main characters to have a main character that is that makes a choice that that decides on action um that decides to act on his feelings instead of the inact or the or the his his lack of acting on his feelings when he was in college and that I feel like is a as a nice drawing together of the idea of like the inactivity and death and or the inactivity and the sort of just acceptance that because at when in in the section that deals with um, him not acting on his feelings with Sayoko he said that he like at the end of the section he feels he says he feels like things have been settled and that a decision has been made even if he's not the one that has made him you know just knowing that a decision is made has sort of like settled things down but in this moment at the end of the the story and at the end ultimately at the end of the collection there's a character who is you know has made a decision that he is taking control of that in in his life and i feel like it's that moment for junpei is similar to the moment with um oh i forgot her name the um setsuki in Thailand, where there is a moment, maybe one, or this might be the last moment, or like the the best chance that they have to change the life that they've been living, um, and it's, I don't know, I feel like it's it's telling that the I'm not sure exactly what it tells, but it feels like it's telling that there's that the the entirety of the short story collection of After the Quake ends on this note of. Like I'm making a decision. I'm making a choice. I'm I'm. I'm, I'm not being inactive. I'm I'm moving. I'm moving in a direction. I'm I'm not gonna let just shit happen to me anymore. Um, and I, I don't know. There's it. It's also interesting that. Earlier, um, at one point, when Takatsuki is is talking to Junpei about the breakup of his marriage, um, he says something along the lines of like, you know, like he had an affair, and that's what that's the cause of, of the breaking up of the marriage. And he's like, you know, it, it felt like it was something that was inevitable. It was I I knew what I, he's like I knew what I was doing, and I knew that I should stop it, but I couldn't. It just it had to happen this way. Which again is this sort of weird, you know. Like is he is he using fate again 
the discussion of like fate and the things that are destined to happen. Is he using fate as a sort of cop out to to not take responsibility for his actions, or is it just is it, is it the acknowledgement that like there is this thing that I there is this way that I am that I I am not actively going to change, and therefore I am susceptible and I'm a victim, or I'm at the the mercy of this way that I am, which will lead me into like shitty behavior um, and bad choices. Um, versus someone like Junpei who feels like at the end of the, the story, and I, I don't mean to keep harping back to the, his, his moment at the end of the story, that like it feels like he... Maybe, maybe that's what it is, that, that with Takatsuki, he, it feels like he is a, he is a victim of, of fate. Like it's, it's not, there's no personal stakes that he has. There's no control over it that he has. And Junpei at the end feels like he is making, like he's taking control of his fate, which is a concept that up in, like up until just right now that I hadn't really thought about that, you know, if you, of the options of struggling against fate, just sort of acquiescing with it or choosing to accept it, there's a potential fourth option of I am going to take control over my own fate and I'm going to direct it to where I want to go, um, which feels like a maybe a more integrated view of it or a more, um, a more holistic approach to it, maybe. Um, I don't know. That it's, again, the fate, that whole concept of in, in thinking about fate was not really something that I was expecting reading through this collection as, as, a, as a sort of massive thematical underpinning to all of it. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I, I, think, I think that I appreciate Murakami's short stories maybe a little bit better than his novels. Um, I have read both... Well, I've read Blind Willow Sleeping Woman... Uh, the elephant vanishes and men without women. Um, but it's been, it's been a long time for the the first two. And I, I don't know where my copy of men without women is <laughs> at the moment. Um, but I, I, I think that I enjoy his short stories a little bit more because they, they feel like they give him the opportunity to like pivot and explore and kind of like a chat book. It's like, you can write out, sort of an idea of a, of a thing and you don't have to sustain it for hundreds and hundreds of pages so you can you can say what it is you want to say about it in like 10 to 15 pages and that's it um and i i feel like they offer him more space to sort of like work out different things versus something like 1q84 or the wind up bird chronicles which feels like it's a massive undertaking of, of drawing all of these all of these threads to the same point and I feel like in in those more behemoth of his of his works, he might fall into the trap of you know what we have come to expect of a Murakami novel, um, which I don't I don't know if that's I don't think that that's an intentional thing, but I I think that it you know like if you're dealing with writing hundreds and hundreds of pages of a thing, you might lean on unintentionally. Um, things that make it easier like pathways that you have that you've walked before um and i know that you know writers 
are a, a bunch that are often pre preoccupied with the same images or the same things or the same ideas or whatever it is. And I, I feel like in the novels, if you're dealing with like sort of the same things over and over again, it can be a little uh, drawn out and a little maybe like overdone. Whereas in short stories, you can, I feel like there's more room to explore and more room to uncover these interesting facets of stuff. Um, and maybe easier to, to tease out um, maybe not like, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know if the concept of fate comes into a lot of other other works or if it does you know like if a novel it might be like really kind of overt and done to death whereas in a at least in a short story collection like after the quake there are because these stories are sort of all working in the same towards the same direction um or maybe it was written with the intention that like all of these stories are going to deal about this thing so that the, the intention was there before. And instead of it being a, just an assemblage of individual pieces that, that have been written, that have been, you know, like you have to kind of make a manuscript out of that. I'm not really, I'm not, I haven't done the research into one into seeing if after the quake, if you wrote it with the intention of like, I'm going to write about the Kobe uh, earthquake. And then these are the stories that sort of proliferated out of that. Um, but I think having maybe that setting that intention at first allows him to, or allowed him at least in this, um, this circumstance to, to, to hit on or imply these themes or these, these questions, um, or these threads without really having to be overt and like, oh, this is, this is the stitching that I'm doing. You can kind of just let these things hang out under the surface and, you know, like as the story, as the short story collection progresses, they sort of build up and build up and they may pop out in random places or, you know, these interesting callbacks or call forwards to things. Um, but I think, I don't know if, if you're, if you have not encountered Murakami ever, if you, have, if you've not really had any experience with him, um, I would definitely recommend after the quake. I, I think I think of at least of his short story collections. I'm a big, big fan of this one. Um, and I think of like all of his works that I've read. I, I would consider this like up at the top of, of things that like this feels like Murakami like on his A game um, because there are there are a lot of his tropes or a lot of the things that would show up on his bingo sheet. But there are also some really interesting subversions that that he that he's able to pull off that given like a full-blown novel i don't know i i don't feel like he's really done that in in those works um yeah i don't know it's also it's a it's a pretty quick read which <coughs> i mean i i really enjoy spending a lot of time with a book and living with it for a while but like i don't know as a like a 31 year old person now with a lot, a lot of other uh, interests that are vying for my attention, I really appreciate a read that's like that's engrossing, but you know, not crazy fucking long. Um, so I don't, I don't want to use quick read as a as a pejorative or derogatory term for it, but like it's it's engrossing, and it as as Vu was saying, like you know, Murakami wants you to to turn the page, and I I feel like in in after the quake he gives you um 
a lot of really good reasons to want to, <laughs> to want to continue reading. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's gonna do it. Um, I did not intend for <laughs> for this episode to be as long as it is. Uh, I will. I don't know. I said it in, I think, the first one, and I'm going to try to keep them not crazy long. Um, and I'm hoping that with uh, poetry collections, I can maybe draw out big overarching things instead of each going through each individual poem. But I don't know. I wanted I wanted to do After the Quake Justice, and I, I felt like each story had its own sort of unique uniqueness and its own merits that I wanted to hit on. Um, but I really like... If someone if someone is able to pull off a sh- a short film of landscape with flat iron like I I just do it please I'm putting the call out it's not even my fucking work I just want to like I've I've been thinking about I've been toying with the idea of writing a, a script adaptation of it but fuck if someone beats me to it please do it I want to I want to see that in existence in in my lifetime at some point. Um, but yeah, I'm extremely tired. I think I'm gonna wrap it up now. Um, I have no idea when I'm gonna review for uh, May, but it will probably be something that I did not expect. If um, <laughs> if the trend of episode two continues, then who know who who the fuck knows. Um, but I hope everyone has a good week weekend whenever the hell you you listen to this. Um, Go find something to read. Go visit a library. Go see what see what strikes your fancy. Pick it up and give it a look. And I'll talk to you all next time.